All right, everyone, let's call the timeout. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Timeout Podcast. My name's Jason, and I'm your host. Today, we're very lucky to have Mr. Sean Stevens on the podcast. Sean is a general surgeon. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here on your podcast with a long list of luminaries, and now I'm scraping on the end of that list. Uh, I think as uh, you might be one of the few guests um, who actually listen to the podcast as well, so it's fantastic <laughs> to meet one of our listeners face-to-face. Well, I'm a very thorough person, so I like to do my research. I thought I'd find out who the other guests have been and what they've said. But I'm also very interested in education, as you know. So I was also very interested in what sort of messaging the students are getting from other surgeons. So yeah, I thought I would listen to all the... I've actually listened to every episode. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> um, I think that's it's obviously great, great that you're listening to it, and um. I hope that you found something interesting, at least um, from listening to all of the other guests. I think it's they've all had their own unique angle and take on some of the questions that we've asked. Um, and I mean, because you've listened to the show as well, you're also quite familiar with the format, which will be helpful as we go through. I would suggest to other people listening that if you've just listened to one or two, listen to more, because I think the value of this podcast is, is, a, is a series and you start getting those divergent opinions, the more that you listen to. If you just listen to one or two, you might think, oh, surgeons are all sort of monocultural. If you listen to a lot, you realise oh, actually there's surgeons from quite different backgrounds and surgeons with quite varying interests. So I, I would encourage you to, to listen to quite a few, even if you don't necessarily listen to every minute of each episode, but just to hear the different types of personalities, I think is quite quite valuable. Yeah, that's right, Sean. I mean, that's part of what's motivated us to do this podcast. For a lot of us, we only see surgeons who work in the clinical setting, but the idea behind this platform is to help us shine a light on the diverse careers within surgery and also within medicine. Um, and just to show all of our listeners that a career in surgery doesn't mean that you only you know, get up in the morning, go to operate and go to clinic. As we always like to do with this show, we'll start with a few warm-up questions just for us to get to know you a little bit and get the conversation going. For those of our guests who might not have met you before, would you like to introduce yourself to them? Sure. So I'm Sean Stevens. I'm a general surgeon. I finished surgical training uh, just two years ago. Uh, and <clears throat> I've got a few other interests. I'm particularly interested in education, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit more. And I've got an interest in public health as well. And outside of those professional interests, my main passion is uh, long-distance running, uh, which uh, if we get talking about that, it can be a bit hard to stop, so apologies in advance. And I, I'm married. My wife is Amber Kennedy, who's an obstetrician and gynaecologist um, who works at the Mercy. So some of the uh, medical students will have met her. Uh, and we have two kids, Jack, who's four, and Bobby, who's one. Fantastic, Sean. So in terms of what you're doing at the moment, you're primarily based at the Austin Hospital, where you're the supervisor for pre-vocational training for the surgical registrars. But you also work a couple of days a week at Colac as a general surgeon, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I've um, my, my career path is a little bit unusual. Um, I've divided my time up into sort of three main roles, clinical, research, and education. My clinical work at the moment I'm doing in Colac, which um, for those who don't know, it's a small country town about two hours to the west of Melbourne, about an hour west of Geelong. Uh, and I, I love working there. I always enjoyed um, my placements in rural towns as a surgical trainee and always thought that um, I'd enjoy going back to work in that environment. But at the same time, my family, my wife's family is from Melbourne, so it didn't really suit us to sort of leave Melbourne. So this is turning out to be a really nice compromise. I would do two days a week in Colac. I head up on a Thursday morning. I... Um, operate there, have a list there, stay overnight to do the on-call, then have another list and another consulting session and then head back Friday evenings. 
So that's that's a really enjoyable two two days. We've got great surgical colleagues and anaesthetic colleagues and nursing staff there, and I really like the patients as well. Uh, and then my uh, the other rest of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm based at Austin, uh, where I've got a role as a uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, this title. I saw you sort of grappling with it. Even I have to think about it sometimes. Supervisor of pre-vocational surgical training. So that's particularly for the HMO 2s and 3s, though it sort of expands a little bit either side of that. Um, and then my other role is with the, the medical school. So I look after the or coordinate the surgical teaching for the medical school. At the moment, I'm not doing any clinical work at Austin, um, but I'll, I'll hopefully do some more in the future. So that's about so the quick summary of how my professional, oh yeah, I suppose the other thing I'm doing at Austin is I'm doing a PhD as well. So that's my, my research focus. Um, and then I'm involved in um, Veritas, which is a, a research collaborative at Austin um, that I helped to start a couple of years ago. I'm still quite involved in that. So Sean, you sound like someone who is balancing a lot of responsibilities at the moment. Not only do you work clinically as a general surgeon in Colac, but you also have a number of roles in teaching and academia at the Austin Hospital and at the University of Melbourne. For the MD2s at the Austin, uh, some of you might have met Sean. He's the person who's in charge of the teaching for your surgical rotations. But Sean, you're also involved at the Austin with the registrar as the supervisor of pre-vocational training. Now, a lot of our guests are heavily involved with clinical work and they've told us about their days, you know, getting up in the morning to see patients, go to theater, uh, go to clinic, and then, you know, potentially go home or do some research after. But we don't get to speak to many guests like yourself who are involved heavily in teaching and academia. So I'm wondering if you could take us through a day where you're in your role as the supervisor of pre-vocational training at the Austin. You know, who do you interact with? What responsibilities do you have? And what sort of work do you do in that role? Yep. So my, my day is quite different than some of the other guests you've had on, I suppose. Um, so a typical day for me, like today, I got woken up at 5.30 when my one-year-old was awake. Um, so that was a bit irritating. I didn't need to be up at that time. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, unlike some of the other guests, I don't get up at 5.30 unless I have to. <laughs> um, so most days I'm up somewhere between 5.30 and 7, usually depending on what my children are doing. Then um, getting them organised and getting them off to, to childcare. And then uh, well, at the moment I'm trying to rehabilitate this Achilles injury. So I was at the physio this morning doing my rehab program. Uh, and then I came back and I had a research meeting. Um, so that's uh, with a, a student who's doing a master's in surgical education, which is something I've done a couple of years ago, and I'm a co-supervisor for his project. Uh, then what I've got on today is a couple of our HMO, surgical HMOs at Austin. Um, I'm involved with some uh, research projects that they're doing. So that's so part of my job as a pre-vocational, oh, such a mouthful, as a <laughs> supervisor of pre-vocational training for the surgical HMOs. Um, one aspect of that is I want to make research available to anyone who wants it. So if a HMO 2 or 3 at Austin wants to get on a surgical project, then I think that's my job to find them a project. And so far, I've been able to do that. So there's a few projects there. Um, I'm touching base with a couple of people today to see how they're progressing in their projects. Um, mm -hmm. And I quite enjoy that. I like that one-on-one uh, -on -one relationship with the trainees. And I like them able to offer some advice. And then I usually learn something as well through the project that they're undertaking. And I'm not always necessarily the sole supervisor. Usually I'm not actually. Usually I'm linking them up with somebody else who might know a bit more about that particular topic, but I can be a useful person in between who knows a bit about research, even if I'm not the topic specialist. Uh, so that's one thing I do. Uh, later today, I've got a tutorial with the MD2s. I think we're doing lumps and bumps today. I usually, in a usual week, I'll probably do two or three tutorials. Um, that might be for the MD2s. 
uh, or it might be for the um, the HMO two or three. So we have something called the Aspire series, which yeah. I know both of you know of. So I'll take a step back and, and just this is a general comment on pre-vocational training. I felt that this was a, a neglected space in surgical education. If we think of surgical education as being a continuum from medical students all the way to consultants, and we're always told how a medical career is, is ongoing learning for all of our career. So that's why I think of it as a continuum. I think where there was a, a big hole in that continuum was in that HMO two and three space. So as medical students, yep, we've got the university looking after you, mm -hmm. um, very well educated. You come to internship and most hospitals will have a dedicated intern teaching program on a weekly basis. Um, so that's quite good. And then once you're on an accredited training program, then, then of course you, you're looked after by your specialty society and the College of Surgeons. Uh, and well, I think the training could be better, but that's another thing. But you're still quite well looked after and there's a clear curriculum you're following. Whereas in those intervening years, there's sort of no ownership of you. To the hospital, you're considered as a service provider primarily as much as I'm trying to change that. Uh, and, and generally and traditionally, the colleges didn't really have a lot to do with trainees at that stage. They didn't really want to really have that responsibility. But fortunately, that, that attitude's changing. People are starting to see, well, if we want to encourage the best people to come into surgery and we want them to be well-prepared when they do arrive in surgery, we need to get, get involved early and start telling them these are the kind of things um, that would be useful to learn at this stage. Mm. Yeah. And so the college has developed JDOCS, which is a, a useful document to give you an idea of the important things to learn in your intern, HMO2, HMO3 years that will help prepare you to get onto surgery. So I think the college has, has made some moves in that space and that's really good. And now I think the, the hospitals need to do that too. And to Austin's credit, they've created my job uh, and expanded my, someone used to have my job actually, but they, they expanded it or doubled the hours um, when I took it on. Um, and I really enjoy it. So what I, what I thought is Austin's got a great program for the registrars. Uh, I think we've got one of the best programs in Australia. Um, and I wanted to develop something that's targeting the MD, MD the HMO twos and threes, because their needs are quite different. So, you know, if you're covering the neurosurge ward for the first time, or you're covering the vascular surge ward for the first time, that can be pretty daunting. And having some education around that, these are the kind of important things you need to know if you're going to cover these wards, would be a really valuable training session. Whereas for the set four in general surgery, you know, they don't care about that anymore. So that the needs are quite different. So that's what we've worked on. And what's been really good is some of the trainees, HMO twos and threes who worked with me to help create this program. So the program's called Aspire. We have sessions on a weekly basis from April to November. Sometimes they're on educational topics. Um, sometimes on career development, like preparing for interviews, um, uh, what higher degree courses are out there that you might want to consider. Um, how to structure, um, how to optimize your CV, how to find referees, the different programs and how to go onto them. So that sort of type of stuff. And what the other thing I like to do, which we haven't been able to do this year is skills-based sessions. So last year we got into the sim lab and we got out the lap trainers and um, practiced knot tying and cutting and that sort of thing, uh, which we'll hopefully get back to doing next year when we can get back to doing some face-to-face -face training. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really am pleased with the Aspire program because it's, it's something that didn't exist. I would have loved it when I went through. Um, it's, it's taken off um, quite quickly. And, and COVID actually, it, while it's interrupted us, it's also uh, presented us with a new opportunity. So now we're delivering our, our teaching online. We do it on Thursday evenings at eight o'clock and that's proven to be much more accessible. So we're getting 20 or 30 people joining. Whereas we, when we did it face-to-face, -face, we had like five or 10 people joining. And now we can start opening up to interns and students are welcome. And, Ultimately, I'm a very inclusive person. I'd like to invite anyone who's interested in surgery can, can attend. Yeah, uh, and that will just hopefully uh, 
uh, I've got various other ideas how we can expand, but the more we can expand, the better, better maybe we can get some resources and then we can do things even better. So yeah, that's one of my passions um, that a bit of my time goes into. This Thursday, we're doing a session that I'm really looking forward to. So it's gonna be with my wife. Uh, we're gonna do a session on rider-like fossil pain. This is traditionally an area of conflict uh, between general surgery and ONG, and also emergency for that matter. And uh, this come back to some of my educational philosophy there's, we've got a bit of a habit of training in silos, like surgeons train separately, ONGs train separately, emergency train separately, but then we all work together. And the, the best results, if we, if we train together, then, then we can work together more effectively. And certainly that's what we do in the military, we all train together and, and it works. So I'd like to apply that more, more uh, in, the, in the clinical environment. So I think this will be nice to do a training session where we're talking about the, this is how we see rift pain from the general surgery perspective, this is how we see it from a gynecological perspective. Uh, we can talk about from ED's perspective as well. Uh, so I generally think that a lot of the conflict that occurs in the hospital, it comes because we don't appreciate each other's perspectives. Um, you know, everyone's in the hospital with good intentions, trying to do their best. Most people are intelligent, well-trained. So we shouldn't really be too critical of our colleagues. And, and when we do think they're doing something wrong, maybe we just need to put ourselves in their shoes and think, think from their perspective. Uh, and the more we train together, the better we're able to do that. So anyway, I'm really looking forward to that session and I'm, I'm going to hope to try to do a few more cross-discipline sessions in the future. So Sean, in terms of Aspire, like it, um, obviously there's, it's well, in terms of what you're offering there and the, the gap, I think that's something that we want to talk about with you today because for a lot of more junior students or for a lot of more junior staff, but also medical students that, that what happens after internship uh, is a bit of a murky black box. Like, you know, you, you go from being an intern to being a, a an unspecified resident of some sort and then suddenly you become a registrar and you know now you're on the training program or you know you, you leave the hospital and, and you work outside in you know in primary care or, or another discipline so that's something that we really wanted to touch on particularly for the surgical side of things because um, it's not something that's really covered in in our curriculum and i think a lot of people have questions to ask about that just in terms of aspire if people want to find out more about aspire um, where can they look um, you know, do you have a Facebook page or is there somewhere that they can find out more, especially people who might not be from the Austin as well, who might want to get involved? Yes, um, we, we are about to finish up this for this year. We've only got about one more month of sessions, but we have got some really good sessions in this last month. And if people from outside Austin want to get involved, then I'm, I'm very happy for them to do so. We do have a Facebook page. So if you search for Aspire Austin on Facebook, you should be able to find us. You may have to re um, uh, request uh, permission to join the group. Um, and if you, if you can't find it and you're having trouble, you can always email me, Sean Stevens. Um, my email is seangregorystevens at gmail.com. I'm sure you'll be able to find me. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter pretty easily. If you Google my name, you'll find me. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so we'll wind back a little bit and maybe find out a little bit more about you first. Um, okay. Is there anything that you're reading or listening to at the moment which you'd recommend to other people? Uh yeah, um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, um, mainly because when I drive to Colac, it gives me two hours um, each way to, to do something. So I found listening to podcasts and audiobooks has been a really good way to make use of that time and get exposed to some things I wouldn't normally get exposed to. The podcast I'm most, most interested in at the moment is um, Joe Rogan, actually. Um, not entirely original, probably like the most famous podcaster out there. <laughs> but <laughs> I really like his podcast because of the diversity of guests. Um, so one week it might be an economist, uh, another week it might be a psychologist, and it might be a neuroscientist, then it might be an M&A fighter, and I'm probably a little bit less interested in that. But the, uh, I guess um, I've sort of became aware that a lot of the media that I consume is, um, it's, 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 I'm sort of guilty of falling into the echo chamber. 
So the, the feeds that I see in Twitter and, and not so much Facebook, so I don't really use that anymore. Um, Apple News, it's all, you know, obviously they have algorithms um, that work on showing me stuff that I've liked before. So I keep getting exposed to the same sorts of things. So I was trying to break out of that cycle. And I found the Joe Rogan podcast quite good for that. So I'm hearing different people speak about really different topics that I don't always know much about, or I, I may not agree with their opinion. And it's been good for thinking about that. And it's often led me onto other podcasts. So a guest will come on. I think this guy's pretty interesting. And then I go and listen to their podcast for a few episodes. Um, so my, my point here is uh, try to challenge your thinking and listen to things or read things that you wouldn't otherwise normally read. I think it helps to expand your mind. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of my, uh, well, actually, when I was doing my ONG rotation last year at the Mercy, that's exactly what uh, my supervising consultant also said. Um, Hayden, I don't know if you listen to this, but... Uh, oh, Hayden, he delivered my uh, first son. Oh, terrific. Yeah, um, yeah Hayden, Hayden, whatever. So uh, Hayden, he, he, said, he said the same thing, um, especially in medicine where you know you tend to hear a lot of the same um mm. i think as a as a medical student um when we don't get when we when we meet more senior doctors um often we don't get to know them more than more than at face value um and so we see them working in, in the clinical space and we think everyone kind of does the same thing um but obviously um there's there's a lot more to find out if we look a little bit deeper which is also why we do this podcast as well mm. um Maybe one more question just uh, about you and then we'll move on to um, sort of, you know, going to medical school and also uh, where you grew up and all those sorts of things. Um, if there was one profession outside of surgery um, that you could do and it does, and uh, irrespective of, you know, the money or, or whatever, just one thing that you really wanted to do, what would it be and why? I would be a professional marathon runner. <clears throat> um, I, I really love running. Uh, I'm, I'm reasonable at it, but I was never quite good enough to justify not pursuing a, another career. Um, but I would love to uh, have been able to do that for a period of time. Not, it's not really a, you know, a lifelong career to be a marathon runner, but I, would, I, I really love uh, challenging sort of mind and body and seeing what's possible. Uh, and I can sort of do that to a degree while maintaining a surgical career, but to really throw myself into it and run like 200 kilometers a week and do multiple training sessions every day and just focus intently on it and see what I could achieve is something I would have uh, loved to do. And uh, in, in my career, I've met a lot of really interesting people. Um, actually, probably I've met more influential people through running than surgery, actually, mainly because we just had that opportunity to get them, to know them a lot better because you're on a 30K run, you've got a lot of time to talk. Uh, and, and a lot of people who I met in my influential years as a teenager and early 20s who um, I suppose they taught me a lot about life and, and how, to, how to achieve success. Um, uh, and how to, how to develop strong mindset about um, uh, and being resilient. So I've got a lot of out of running um, and been to various places around the world to race. It's been fun. Uh, and, and when I lived in Norway for a while, I joined a running club there. And so that was, that was like a really good way to get an in, insight into Norwegian culture. So I've had a lot of great experiences out of running, but I would love to have uh, dedicated myself to it for a few years. <clears throat> I was looking at looking at some of your times. Um, you that you you're a bit understating your achievements here. You ran a half marathon in just over an hour, an hour and eight in Melbourne. That was a few years ago. And then, um, this is on worldathletics.org, by the way. Um, and then your marathon, I think your PVs two two and a half to two twenty seven. Yep. Yeah, two twenty seven. That was in Dubai. Uh, and then this year I ran two twenty nine at Lake Biwa Marathon in Japan. Uh. And I was a little bit disappointed because I, I thought I could run quite a bit faster. I was on track to run about 221, 222. And then unfortunately, my um, 
Achilles and calves uh, started cramping up and I ended up shuffling across the line. And I'm still rehabilitating from that now, unfortunately. Still some pretty, plan is to, pretty you know, get back. Times. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the the idea of, you know, as you mentioned, in, in running, learning about uh, resilience, but also the coaches and the people that you met along the way who taught you these things. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of careers, we see similar sort of structures, you know, where you're working with or within a, within a team or a group of people. And there are people who are more far along in their careers um, who are maybe able to give you some advice and point you in the right direction. I'm wondering, um, you know, starting off as, you know, when you were, um, you know, young, when you, when you were a boy, um, you know, did, where did you grow up? And also were there any influential people in your life early that maybe steered you towards either running or a medical career? Um, my, my running started when I joined high school and I didn't really know that I was good at running actually. Uh, we, we, all, the study is seven. We all got lined up on the oval and went to St. Bernard's, which is a school in Essendon. Um, and we got told, okay, you just got to run a lap around the school. It's about three kilometers. So 200 kids all like took off and most people were just sprinting because they had no idea how to pace themselves for three Ks and I couldn't sprint at all. So I was probably coming like a hundredth or something, but then slowly I started picking people off and, and eventually I, I finished third. So that was a big surprise to me. I didn't, didn't realize I had that ability. So then I was asked to join the school running team and there was a coach there, Jared Brown, um, who was the first really influential mentor for me. Uh, he was a good runner, not a, not a champion, but a good runner. And I just observed the way he trained and looked after his body, uh, the way he could push himself really hard. Uh, and then at the same time, he was an excellent teacher. Uh, he was really good to all the students. Uh, his own kids became very good runners as well, actually. So that, that really showed me that running can be a sport for someone who wants to, to do well professionally uh, and, and, and keep yourself fit and healthy and, and train your mind. Uh, so then I went on to join a running club a bit later on and I met someone else there. His name is Peter Gaffney. He's um, one of the most influential people in my life. Uh, he reached his peak in running at, at 46. So he tells a story about how in his late 20s, he got convinced that oh, 30 is too old to run. So he had to retire. And then 15 years later, he decided that's probably not good advice. So he started running again and he actually got faster uh, than he'd ever been. And so he's one of those people that I learned that don't believe what the dominant paradigm is. Uh, you know, um, there may be a reason why that's the case, but maybe you can challenge that. Um, so, and that, that's a really important lesson that, that I learned. If you get told you can't do something, that may not be the case. Explore it. If you're really passionate about it, then look into it, research it, explore it, test it out, see who else may have done it. And maybe you can do it. Uh, and my dad's a little bit that way. He played um, competitive football until he was about 56, 57. Uh, after having first retired when he was in his mid-30s and then he came back and played another 20 years. So it just sort of taught me that you can do things that other people might not think are possible uh, if you're willing to uh, really focus your energies on it and be committed to it. Uh, and then I've met various other people through the running club um, that just taught me good ways to live, I suppose. And then in terms of medicine, the, the one, it was a very chance encounter that, that shifted my focus to medicine. Up until when I was 16, my focus really had been on, I just wanted to be a sports person. And then I, I, I vaguely had this idea, maybe it'd be a good idea to have a backup plan because I'm, I'm not really that talented. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I want to be a physio because then I can still be involved in sports. So that'd be cool. And just by chance, I happened to meet a physio at the, the running club one day. He wasn't actually part of our club. He was just down there um, using our gym for some reason. And I was telling him, oh yeah, I'm interested in physio. And he's saying, yeah, I'm a physio. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then he said, you know what? I tell you, if you can do medicine though, you should do medicine. And so why is that? And he goes, because you have more opportunities. And that, that concept really struck with me. Uh, I've always liked that idea of 
looking for creating and seizing opportunities. And so I thought, all right, I'll do medicine then. And now when I look back, I think that was fantastic advice. I don't want to denigrate physios. And of course, there's lots of fantastic physios out there. And I'm seeing a really good physio for my Achilles at the moment. But I do think that point is true. There are so many options in medicine. And there's actually more options than people will tell you. Uh, and I, I think that um, I've been constantly learning that myself um, even in the last few years. And what I'm doing now is quite different than what I would have envisaged possible a couple of years ago. It's a, it's a great career uh, and you can do so many different things with it. Uh, so I, I, you know, all of you are probably medical students listening. So good on you for choosing this as a profession. And if at times you're not feeling satisfied or happy with it, uh, I'd suggest think more broadly about what you can do with it. Um, don't necessarily have to leave the profession. Maybe you want to use these skills in a different way that you that is not the, the common way, but uh, might be a way that suits you and may still be really beneficial to the community. I think we should have more doctors in more other aspects of life who can contribute to policy decision-making and, and other aspects of the community. Yeah, I mean, even as a more sort of contemporary or, or current example, you know, we see uh, the chief health officers at, you know, the state and the federal yeah. level um, yeah. who have previously been invisible people. Now yeah. They're sort of some of the most, um, you know, some of the most present people in the public conscience. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think in terms of seeing the diversification in, in surgical careers, especially as now we see, um, you know, I think there was a, there was an article on, uh, that, I, that I read online saying that you know, the average career now is about six or seven years in one space. Um, you know, I think particularly for, for us now, the, the ones who are coming through a training, that it's probably something that we're going to ex need to expect that things are going to change. Mm. Um, also, as, you know, technology mm. starts to disrupt the way we practice medicine as well, we're seeing telehealth now really taking off as well. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the diversity within a medical career is, is, is probably going to be really, really big. Mm. <laughs> um, in terms of your interests, uh, at, at school, uh, were you, you know, sciences oriented or, or humanities oriented, or, um, you know, as you mentioned, sport was obviously playing quite a big part in your life at that time. Mm. Um, what, what did you tend to gravitate towards as a, as a student? I generally just like learning, so I enjoyed all the subjects really. Um, the, but when I did start doing more science subjects, I found that was probably more uh, where my interest lay and more what my strength was. So <clears throat> by year 11 and 12, I was mostly doing science mass subjects. Yep. Um, and so you graduated uh, uh, at the turn of the at the turn of the century, I believe, 1999-2000. Yep. Um, and then you went to Monash um, to do mm -hmm. a a biomedicine degree and then followed up that up with an honors project um, mm -hmm. for one year, I think in 2003. Yep. And that was actually on neurophysiology. So mm -hmm. can you tell us just before we move on to medical school, um, what did you find in biomedicine or what did you find while doing a research project that um, maybe encouraged you or, you know, did it have any effect on your decision to actually go into medicine? Yes, it did. So doing biomedical science uh, taught me that I really enjoyed science uh, and I loved the process of learning more about science. I particularly like physiology. Um, so I like to understand how systems worked, which as I've got older, I've kind of realised I like applying that to life as well. I like understanding how various systems in the world operate. Um, so for my honours year, that was a, a one-year research project and I was looking at the rat somatosensory cortex and how it codes for tactile uh, stimulation. So specifically what we did is we had this model where we'd have an anaesthetized rat and we'd have its little whisker in this machine and we could control how fast and how far that whisker would move. And at the same time, we'd have an electrode uh, recording from the somatosensory cortex. And what we'd try to do is work out, so when you move a whisker this far or this fast, this is how the cell fires. And then based on that, work out how it's coding for information. 
which was kind of interesting. And that would lead on to looking at brain plasticity. So I had my environmentally enriched rats in their, their fancy cages of a whole lot of toys that would get changed over every day. And what we we're looking at was whether a standard cage versus a rat in environmentally enriched cage, it would have a more sophisticated ability to, to code for tactile information and to be able to demonstrate brain plasticity. So I did that for a year and I learned a couple of things out of that. One is that while I like science, I didn't want to be purely a scientist. I wanted to be involved in, in clinical medicine. Yeah. I wanted to be involved in applying that science and working with people. I also realized that I felt uncomfortable with that animal research. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that I don't think we should do research on animals because um, you know, we all stand to benefit a lot of, uh, we've all benefited a lot from research that has been done on animals. But I certainly felt uncomfortable about it and I didn't enjoy the process. So I decided that while I liked research, that wasn't the type of research that I wanted to do in the future. And I thought maybe I'd want to do clinical research. So that was a pretty clear decision. I thought I'll go do medicine and I'll look out for other research opportunities down the track. Yeah. So um, did you need to sit like the 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 GAMSAT or equivalent at the time? And yeah. Um, and I, I'm assuming well, obviously you, you you did well and got got in got into medicine. Um, at the time, Melbourne was uh, still in the MBBS sort mm. of structure. So uh, it was a five-year degree, I believe. It was four and a half um, because the graduates, so you're right, the graduates and the undergrads were mixed together, um, which I think was uh, maybe not an ideal solution. Um, there was always naturally conflict to a degree between the two cohorts. I don't think it's the best way to structure a medical degree. And they've moved on from that now, as you know. So yeah. it was a four and a half year program. We didn't have to do the first semester. And that, that suited me fine because it meant I had eight months um, off between finishing my honours and starting second semester. And I was really keen to go traveling. Um, so I'd, I'd always been saving my money through high school and then through biomed. So I could afford this big eight month uh, traveling extravaganza backpacking around the world. So I got to do that before I started medicine. And that was a major highlight of my life. Where did you go? I started in Africa, um, backpacked around Africa for a couple of months. And then I went to Egypt, which of course is also Africa. Um, and I wasn't really planning on going to the Middle East, but while I was in Egypt, people were talking about how Jordan's really interesting. So I spent a few weeks in Jordan and then I thought, well, I'm so close to Israel and Palestine. I'd really love to go there. So I spent a few weeks uh, there and Jerusalem by far would be the most interesting city I've spent time in. And then I was interested in going to Syria. So I went there for three weeks and you wouldn't know it now, but Syria was just an incredible place to visit. And some of the nicest people I've had the pleasure of meeting and food was really great. And then I thought I might go to Iraq, which was a bit of an ill-conceived idea because the war had just started there. But I was a very curious person. So I wanted to go to see it for myself. So then I went backpacking through Iraq and fortunately escaped there alive. Uh, then I went through Turkey and then made my way through the Balkans and, and various other parts of Eastern Europe and then finished up in Western Europe. So something like 50 countries over about eight months. Oh, that's very extensive. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was my, my, my mission was to get some life experience and I actually didn't have a lot of money. I think I had about $12,000 for eight months. So I was on a pretty tight budget. A lot of the time it was $5 a day or $10 a day was my budget. And, mm. you know, I slept outside in the streets a few times to save money and I'd just eat at supermarkets. I just really wanted to make things kind of challenging for myself because I wanted to have this sort of interesting, challenging life experience. I didn't do that all the time. Like I, you know, mixed it up a bit, but yeah. there was certainly <laughs> part of it was to challenge myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually just on that point, um, you know, there, we, I sort of, Alex has helped me do some research here and we, we sort of know that you, you took a gap here after graduating from high school. And then also you've had, I mean, maybe it's sort of fortunate that you've had that block off at the start of your MBBS, but yep. um, there are, 
you know, obviously like Alex and, and myself and a lot of the other people who are involved with the Surgical Student Society, we all have friends who, uh, you know, take time off to, you know, go traveling or, um, you know, take a gap year. Um, some of us might even know, you know, residents or, you know, people who are on training programs who take time off during the training or before they get onto a program, particularly for like, for example, BPT2 is a really common year mm -hmm. where people take some time off. And just for those listening, so uh, BPT2 is the physician training, the basic physician's training. That's the second year of the three years of training that they do. Um, and a common thing that we hear all the time is, uh, even as, as students is like, you know, take take your time off and, and make the most of your holidays and go and do stuff now because you won't get the chance to do it later. Now, on that, on that topic, I'm wondering, um, in, you know, you said that you wanted to learn some life lessons and, and go traveling and, and experience those things. Um, do you feel like you achieved those goals? And maybe for people who are thinking about taking some time off, are there any considerations that or bits of advice that you might give them to to help them use that time? I mean, obviously, everyone has slightly different goals. Mm. But generally, in terms of like, maybe how to think where to think about taking that time off, whether it's worth it or not, um, mm -hmm. just be very interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Um, I agree that that's common advice about, um, yeah, take time off now, enjoy it while you can. Um, and probably it is easier when you're young, but it's also not impossible to keep doing it later on. I've taken time out maybe three times. So just before I started medicine, then um, during medicine, I did an exchange program. I went to Norway um, with, with my wife. Um, so Amber and I, we met at this, on the first day of medical school, actually. Uh, and then so we went to Norway for six months. And in a way, that was like having time off because that was we did a lot of traveling and it was a lot of fun. Then PGY4, I took a year out. I didn't go traveling. Um, that was more uh, strategic. I decided to do a master's of public health full time that year, uh, and also join the or I joined the army the year before. But that, in that year, I did a lot of courses for the army. So I just wanted that time to explore a few other interests. And then I took another year out during surgical training, um, which is not a very common thing to do something, you know, 10 years ago, people would have got told you can't do it. Uh, the, you know, that's a bit ridiculous, really. There's no reason why you should not be able to take a year out. It's not like you forget everything you know in a year. Mm. So um, <clears throat> when I applied, I didn't have any issues, actually. My supervisor at Austin was very supportive. Um, most um, consultants I told were quite supportive. A few were quite surprised, but most were supportive. And all my peers were supportive, without exception. Uh, so I took a year off because I wanted to look after my son for a year. Um, my wife had taken the year off before to look after Jack. And so I thought I'll take a year off too. And that was a, a, a very important thing to do. So I've taken a year off at multiple stages. And now as a consultant, um, if you want to take a year out, you can do that. And people go overseas to do fellowships, which is a bit the equivalent of taking a year off, I suppose. Um, so, well, yes, it's probably easier when you're younger. It's certainly by no means impossible to do it later. And if you have the interest and passion to do so, then I think keep your mind open that you can do that. Coming back to your question about um, how to go about it, I think it's a good idea to think what is your goal? Because each time I've taken a year off, I've had a different goal. Um, I've done it for a different reason. So I think know what you're doing it for and then structure accordingly. If you just want to um, have time to be in a different environment, um, have time to think about how you want to live the rest of your life, have time to think, um, you know, that can be quite good when you're young. Maybe if you've grown up in uh, a family that's sheltered and high school, we've been spoon fed and about to go to university where um, you know, it's a bit sort of regimented and you're going down a medical pathway, maybe a year out to have some time to think differently and do different things uh, might be a really good thing for you. Uh, or you may have a very strategic goal, like you might want to spend a year doing one particular activity you're really passionate about and you just want to really throw yourself into it for a year. So I think, think about what the purpose is and, and pursue that. Um, I, I would say I don't think I've ever met someone who's taken a year out and they go, oh, I really regret that. I really wish I'd spent another year doing the same thing I'm doing for the next five years. Yeah. 
and, and by the time people get to 60, or actually I've heard a few of your guests say this, they talk about once you become a consultant, what you're doing then is what you're doing for like 30 years or so. Whether you get there at 30 or 35, you know, does that really matter? Probably not. So I would strongly encourage people to pursue interests and passions um, that you have and don't feel that you have to give up on them or sacrifice all of them to do a surgical career. Certainly you have to make some sacrifices, but do so cautiously and, and be very cautious about sacrificing things that you're passionate about. I've been, I remember getting told almost at every step of the way that I was going to have to give up running. I got told that in year 11 before I started year 12. You know, you know, if you want to get into medicine, you're going to have to really focus on your studies. You're going to have to stop running every day. So, of course, I didn't do that. I got told that uh, at the start of medicine that to get through medicine, I have to stop running. I didn't do that. I started running more. I got told that during surgical training. I didn't do that. I was running 120 kilometers a week during, medical, uh, during surgical training. So you can do these things. If you're passionate about it, you're committed, you plan around it, you manage your time effectively. Uh, and I'm very, very serious about that. You shouldn't give up your passions because that can lead to people becoming burnt out. Uh, if they're spending all their time doing the one thing and they're not getting that time to uh, not so much rest, but like regenerate. So yep. although running like adds to my workload, it, it's very regenerative. Uh, I, I feel a lot better after running. And, and when I've been injured and I'm not running, then, then I do actually feel more tired and irritable. Uh, and I think other passions might be similar. Sorry, Jason. Maybe it's a form of active recovery for you. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah exactly. Yeah. Just on that topic of medical school. Yep. Was surgery always the thing that you wanted to do? Because you, you said that you were interested in physiology and the system sort of thinking. I mean, yep. surgery in, to some extent is, is systematic, but you don't tend to think about the entire body as much mm. or a specific area of the body. What, if anything, led you towards surgery? Like, did you consider maybe doing a physician's pathway as well? Uh, so I did always want to do surgery from when I decided I'd do medicine when I was around so 16, 17, I, I, I thought I'd probably do surgery. Not that I really knew much about it at all, but I liked the idea of, um, I liked anatomy and I liked the idea of using my hands to solve a problem basically. Uh, and, and that simple explanation has, has stayed to this day. So I get a lot of satisfaction out of using my mind and my hands to, to solve problems. It's, it's a very satisfying process. Yeah, absolutely. So we, so you graduate medical school, yep. uh, 2008, um, yep. and then you start, did you start working at the Austin or where were you working after that? Yep. Yep. Started working at the Austin. Yep. Um, Amber had gone through medical school at Austin. So, and really enjoyed working at the Austin and was planning to do internship there. So we applied together. I don't know if you can still do it, but we could apply jointly as an intern yep. position. So if they wanted to take Amber, they had to take me as well. And fortunately <laughs> they did. Um, and then I think you said a, a sort of PGY4. Mm -hmm. So at that stage, um, so for those listening, PGY4 is post-grad year four. It's four years after Sean graduated. Yep. Um, so in, in 2011, um, at that point, were you, you weren't on the program yet, is that right? And then you took some time off to, to study and, and do some other things as well. Yeah. That was a high-risk strategy. So I did internship. I did surgical HMO2, HMO3, and then PGY4 I took off with the intention of that year applying to start set surgical training the following year. Yeah. Uh, what that means is my referees are all based from the previous year, HMO3. Um, if I was unsuccessful at getting on, then I probably wouldn't have gone on the year after that either because I'd now had this sort of non-clinical year. I wouldn't have got any more referees and I wouldn't have had good rotations and stuff. So it was a bit of a high-risk manoeuvre. I just backed myself that I'd get on uh, and unfortunately I did. And it also allowed me then to pursue a few other interests. So I'd say in my career, I've taken a few sort of high risk, um, not a high risk, that's maybe a bit extravagant. I've taken a few risks, 
uh, that are calculated risks um, that have fortunately paid off. And generally, it's allowed me to pursue other interests. And that's generally what they've been around, actually. Yeah. I'm wondering, <clears throat> maybe if we can touch on the MPH first, and then we can talk yep. about some of the army stuff as well. So with the MPH, uh, there are, you know, currently at Melbourne, at least, there's um, the option to do an MPH between third and fourth year. Mm, yeah. Um, and, you know, there are all these different reasons why people want to do a master's in public health. Yep. What was the reason for you to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'll just take a little step back when I was, well, so that big traveling I did before medical school and spending time in some low income countries made me think I'd like to go back and do something useful. Then during medical school, uh, the opportunity arose to go over to, to Kenya to do some project work with a, a charity uh, that was organized by medical students. So I did that and that was a, a very eye opening experience. I realized how naive we all were and how much we didn't know about project work and uh, we were on the brink of disaster at one stage, but fortunately that didn't happen. And overall our intervention was, was a positive one, but it made me realize I need to learn more about this. So that was my main impetus for, for doing a master's in public health. Mm. And most of the subjects I chose uh, were around uh, global health and project development in global health settings. And then narrowing down even further uh, in, in what's called global surgery, which at the time, so this is 2012, wasn't really that spoken of actually. And one of my supervisors had never even heard it before, although he was a global health expert. Um, so in, in eight years, global surgeries uh, made quite significant advancements to being seen as a very important topic on the global surgery, uh, global health stage. So what global surgery is about for, for people wondering what the hell I'm talking about. It's about delivering surgical services um, that are in a timely fashion, that are affordable and that are safe, and particularly focusing on doing this in, in underserviced uh, populations. That might be within countries. So we have areas in Australia where surgical services are lacking, or it could be in countries as, as, as a whole. Uh, and RACS, the so Royal Australian College of Surgeons, Australasian College of Surgeons, is, is getting interested and, and very involved in this space. And we support a lot of projects around the Asia Pacific area. Uh, World Health Organization has been much more um, active in this space, which previously was um, global health was dominated by infectious disease, but that's starting to change. So that was my interest in, in doing the MPH and it was really worthwhile doing. I learned a lot about health systems and how health systems work, um, which I think is quite valuable for all doctors, particularly anyone who might go on to administration. And I, I learned a lot more about um, low-income countries and the challenges they face and, and how high-income countries may work with them to help address some of their challenges. I'm sure you learned also a little bit about some of the challenges within high-income countries as well, despite the fact that we have more resources, we don't always get the best outcomes. I'd say one thing I learned is that uh, no one's ever happy. It doesn't matter how good you have it. it you, people will always think, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> um, some people say yeah. that. But, and, and to a degree, it's true. Like we can always improve. And I heard one of your other guests, um, Janelle, talking about innovation. And I'm quite in, interested in innovation as well. Uh, and I think the problems that we face now, we're not going to solve those problems by thinking in the same way we're currently thinking. So we've always got to be challenging ourselves to think differently and, and think how can we overcome these problems. And, and that's going to be through innovation. In terms of the other side of that year was um, you joining the army and working as a medical officer. Um, mm -hmm. What what was uh, what was the motivation behind that? Uh, joining the army had been something I'd thought about since high school. I was always interested in it, though I didn't have a lot of first-hand experience. Um, so I didn't have any friends or family, for example, that were in the army. Um, I met a couple of doctors uh, through medical school, internship, um, HMO years, who were in the army and uh, that gave me enough incentive to think, all right, I'm just going to join and, and see what it's like for myself. Um, 
So I joined in 2011, and in 2012, I did a few courses. So the, if, you, if you're already a doctor and you join the army, you join as a medical officer. And before you're deployable, you need to do a series of courses where you learn sort of the basics about how the army functions, and you learn the basics about your role as a medical officer. Um, and I, I really enjoyed all those courses. And then I'd go and do some uh, exercises. So I might go out with infantry or cavalry and support one of their exercises. Um, so then I get to see how these other um, corps uh, functioned. That was quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> then I'm just thinking about where I'm at now is that I haven't been deployed, I haven't been overseas. Um, I have done all the courses that I, I need to by now. Mm. Um, now is not a really good time for me to go overseas, particularly with young family. That gets a bit challenging. Yeah. So I kind of view this as a bit of a long-term involvement. And there's a lot of educational role as well within, within um, as being a medical officer. So training up um, other people in our health units. And I quite enjoy that. And there's quite a bit of simulation that goes on in army as well. So that's something else I'm interested in getting involved in in the future. I think it's yeah interesting because um, there's a there's a book out there um, by Atul Gawande. He's one of the yep. you know, quite a prominent surgeon talking about the it's called the Checklist Manifesto. <laughs> yeah, that's um, sitting on my wife's uh, bedside table. <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially, it's, it's a little bit about how um, we can design systems in a way to help catch human error and mm -hmm. um for those of you who've been in theater before the world health organization pre-surgical checklist was actually innovated by um professor gawandi and some of his colleagues in, in the uk mm. um in the same way when, when we talk about training as well um you know nowadays and this is sort of relating to your role now as, as a training supervisor the there's been a move from c1 do one teach one to simulation training and I'm wondering, in your experience, you know, going through the going through the army, having seen the way that they do things, mm. um, what if any of that do you think is was was really valuable, and what could be applied to the way that we maybe train? Let's start with start with our medical students first. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, what are some of the lessons there? If if there are, I'm sure there are plenty that you think can apply from your experience in the army to the way we teach at the medical school level, and then we'll talk about registrar training as well. This is a really good topic, uh, Jason. Um, so one thing I learned from Ami is Ami don't expect you to be able to do anything if they haven't taught it to you, uh, which means that you do a lot of training for stuff that's really basic and obvious. But on the other side, it's kind of good. It kind of means you're supported. There's no, there's, they're not putting unreasonable expectations upon you. So, um, we will teach you everything you need to know. And <clears throat> that doesn't always happen in surgery. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of expected people have magically learned. Uh, and, and coming back to that gap I spoke about between HMO 2 and 3 and then getting onto a surgical program. Program In HMO 2 and 3, it's hard to get into theatre, it's hard to get people to teach you how to operate. But by the time you're on the program, people are like, so you can do an appendix vasectomy on your own, right? Like, where do you expect people to have learned that? So that's something I liked about Army, is that everything you expected to know, you get taught it. It's all taught very regimentally and, <clears throat> and it's done quite well. Uh, that doesn't come back to the medical student aspect so much, but where, what I do like that the Army do a lot of, and I think we should do more of for medical students, is simulation. Uh, simulation is a fantastic way to train. It, it's, it's safe, first of all. It's a much better learning environment. Um, <clears throat> and it's something that we can quite readily do. When we talk about simulation, often we're thinking of very high-tech things, and that's all interesting and exciting. But we can do simulation in, in very simple ways that, that are very low-tech as well, that don't require much resources. Um, the, 
We're, the only simulation that I've really been involved in with medical students is one of the shoots I do. It's for um, the febrile patient postoperative week. And oh, we use yes. SimMan and we go through different scenarios. And I really enjoy running that session. And it combines a lot of the things that we've taught through the surgical rotation, like how to examine the patient, take a history and um, different clinical conditions and so on. And then we're applying it all together in the simulated environment. Hmm. I would like to see us do a lot more of that stuff at all levels of surgical training, medical student, HMOs, registrar. So uh, how I'm going to further this is I wanted to get some training in simulation. So, and this also speaks to how there's a whole lot of other things you can do when you're a doctor. I applied for a Churchill Fellowship. So for those that don't know, the Churchill Fellowship, it's uh, something available in Australia, also in UK. It's named after Winston Churchill. Um, they're this organisation that um, uh, I suppose memorialises Churchill in a way. And the way they're doing that is they've, they've raised all this money over the years and they fund 100 Australians to go overseas to learn more about any particular field. So it's not just doctors applying, but there's um, from the year that I was awarded the Churchill Fellowship, there was people, a, a dietitian was going to look at how other hospitals are minimising food waste. There was someone going to look at um, how another country about how they treated Indigenous people in, in prisons to improve um, treatment there. Very diverse projects. So what I've applied for is to look at how simulation has been used in UK and North America, where in my opinion, they're a long way ahead of us in Australia, unfortunately. Mm. Um, so I'm, I was actually supposed to be doing that now, but COVID hit, so that's been postponed. That's um, yeah. I think uh, emergency medicine do it, do it quite well and anaesthetics and in intensive care. Um, so surgery in Australia, we need to lift our game a bit uh, and get better involved in simulation and, and then do some cross-discipline training as well. But certainly that's something I'd like to see a lot more of in the medical student space and the HMO space, um, particularly because that's just going to be a much safer way of training. You're not learning these procedures on patients for the first time. Uh, and it's a less threatening environment. Theatre can be a pretty intimidating environment to learn in. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly early on. It's quite, um, it can be, yeah, there's interesting dynamics um, whenever I think sort of juniors um, get, start to get more involved in theatre as well. I mean, for, um, you know, a, a big part of why, you know, we tend to like to ask all the guests about how students can be involved and all that sort of stuff is because to a degree there is a bit of expectation and with expectation comes some degree of a little bit of anxiety about not doing the right thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think simulation training, definitely uh, something, yeah, worth worth exploring, I think, especially, um, you know, going, going forward with, with how technology might potentially change yeah. that as well. Mm. Um, on that point, um, with, with ongoing training, um, I mean, you obviously went through the registrar, um, the, the whole sort of set training process yourself. Mm. Um, the, the big question here is, uh, you know, what do residents and registrars learn that is different from from medical medical students? Like the stuff that we learn, um, you know, when we speak to residents and stuff, it's like, well, yeah, like you learn that stuff, but it's not really that applicable <laughs> for when we yes. actually do our work. Yes. Um, what what is the reason for that gap? And also what is actually different? Like say, for example, if you're putting together a curriculum for uh, a PGY4, maybe, you know, like yourself a few years ago, who was someone who's about to get onto the program or maybe mm -hmm. like a set one, set two, set three, mm -hmm. how does their, like, how does the overall program actually differ from what we learn as medical students? I know it's a big question, um, mm. but maybe just provide some general insights about how the structure is different at all. That would be interesting to hear. Okay. Yeah. This is a good question. I think there's, um, opportunity to break down a bit of a myth here. The, the level of uh, content knowledge that medical students get taught, particularly at University of Melbourne, is very high. 
And when you're an intern, HMO2, HMO3, uh, their specific knowledge will probably not be higher than a final year medical students because I've probably forgotten a bit of stuff. Sure, they picked up a few other new things along the way that's, that's clinically relevant. But the specific content knowledge is very high by the end of MD4. Uh, and based on seeing students come from other universities, I think that's something University Melbourne has been pretty good at. Um, but like with everything, if you focus on one thing, it means you're not focusing on other things. And I have seen students from other universities perhaps be better clinically orientated by the time they come to internship. And I think this is something University of Melbourne has recognised and is addressing now. Um, so really the difference between what you learn at medical school and what people are learning as interns and HMO2s and 3s, one, medical students are learning sort of content, whereas the junior clinicians are learning how to be clinicians. So taking the knowledge that you have and then applying that. So regularly taking histories, regularly examining people, regularly putting together a differential list, regularly thinking about uh, how to manage these different conditions. And then the practicalities of being a clinician. So how you do a ward round, how you document things effectively, how you go and get all the tests requested that you need, how you negotiate with radiology, who don't want to do the test that your registrar has asked you to do, uh, yeah. how you refer a patient to another unit and you convince that registrar that they, they should take time out of their day to see your patient. Um, how you work with the emergency department to uh, manage referrals. They're all the things that really you focus on as, as a junior doctor. Um, so HMO 2 and 3 don't make a lot of, do a lot of clinical decision-making. Mainly that's all coming from the registrar. The main example would be when you're asked to review a patient on the ward. Um, and that's when you uh, apply those skills about how to take a history and assess a patient. But it's pretty limited. So the knowledge expansion doesn't really happen that much uh, in HMO 2 and 3. It's more the application of knowledge that, that really improves. Then when you get on a SEP program, if we just talk about surgery now. The big difference is you need to learn how to operate, right? That's, that's like what characterises a surgeon, the ability to operate. So that's a fundamental aspect of what's taught on the surgical programs, how to operate. There is, of course, more knowledge that we need as well. And that knowledge is generally, I'd say, it's, it's accumulated somewhat passively as we go through. And then as you approach the exam, people are like, oh, my God, I've got to learn all these things in the syllabus. And then people sit down and they spend a year studying for the final exam, which is in the final year of surgical training. Uh, and there's a lot of content you need to know for that exam. So there's a big difference between the knowledge that set twos and threes have and the knowledge that set fours and five have, because that exam really forces you to go and get back to the books, mm. think about things you haven't maybe thought about much since medical school, and then learn them in a lot of detail, and you actually need to know them. Um, on, on that, I would say it's a very good system, actually, because coming out the other side of it, think, okay, I, I do feel pretty safe to practice as a surgeon independently now. I don't know everything, but I know what I need to know, and I know what I don't know, which is very valuable, and I know how to get help when I need to get uh, get help. So it is quite a, a, a good system that we do produce good quality surgeons in Australia. So do you feel like the system is essentially geared to make all the people who get through, or even the people who are preparing to, to get through, mm -hmm. basically put them in at a, at a place where they are comfortable to practice independently? Mm. Yeah, the idea, well, for general surgery anyway, the idea is that by the time you finish general surgery, you'd be safe to practice independently. Um, in, a, in a country hospital, for example, kind of like what I'm doing in Colac. Yeah. So no one's expecting you to go off and do liver resections and pancreatectomies and ultralow anterior resections, but you should be able to do appendicectomies and hernia repairs and gallbladders and occasionally the, potentially the emergency colectomy. You should be able to do those things safely. You should be able to recognise a patient who's really sick who might need transferring out to a place with more resources. 
Um, so that's kind of the expectations. And if you want ultra low anterior section, then you do further training and you become a HPV surgeon or a colorectal surgeon. Uh, in, in terms of that uh, specialization, so is that, uh, you know, we have a lot of guests who've obviously done fellowships and all mm. those things overseas. Is that what that extra training is about? Or do you need to, when you're going through set, again, this is partly for my benefit. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. really understand, but I think yeah. um, if I don't understand, I'm assuming a lot of other people also won't get yeah. it. Yeah. Um, what happens when you want to specialize? So you, you go through set one. So for, again, for those who are listening, so set is like the, 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 it's like the equivalent of BPT, but it's just how we name the years, I'm pretty sure. Yes, yeah, set means set surgical one, so education and training. Yeah. All right. Yeah, sure. So surgical education and training, and you go yeah. through from one to five. It's a bit then... confusing now in general surgery because they got rid of set one. So you start in set two. <laughs> right. <laughs> it used to be set one to five. They got rid of set one. So then it was two to five. It was a four-year program. But then everybody agrees that four years is not long enough. So it's going to go back to a five-year program. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the specifics. If we're just talking generals, if I, I'll just run through the, the – the, it's good, good to sort of hear in one go how it works. So you do, you're a medical student, you're an intern, then you're a resident, usually for two years. Most people do HMO two or three. Um, then you're a registrar after that. A lot of people are doing an unaccredited registrar here. So this means you're a registrar, you're a surgical registrar, you're getting into theatre, you're learning, starting to learn how to operate, but you're not yet, yet on a formal training program. So it's called an unaccredited registrar. You don't have to do that. But because it's quite competitive to get into surgical training programs, that's what a lot of almost everybody is, is now doing before they start their formal training. Then you apply to get onto a SET program or a surgical education training program. There's quite a variety. So there's general surgery, orthopedics, plastics, vascular, neurosurg, cardiothoracic, uh, pediatric surgery, and urology. I may have missed one or two. Uh, so you're, you're applying from the outset, which is a bit different than how it was a generation ago where you did basic surgical training first and then you chose your specialty. So that's not the system now. You choose your specialty from the start. Right. So you know where you're going is yep. the idea. So for me, I chose general surgery. Then at the end of the, in the last years for all the surgical programs, you do a massive exam, you have to pass that. Uh, and that's pretty tough. Pass rate in my year was 58%. So you've got all these like high achievers who are ducks at their school, who never failed an exam in their life. And they study for a year for this exam and only 58% of people are passing. So that gives you some idea of how, how challenging it is. Most people do eventually pass after a couple of goes though. Then once you finish surgery, um, then you're a consultant and you can theoretically go out and practice independently. In general surgery though, because our syllabus is just so broad, so we've got HPV, upper GI, colorectal, breast, endocrine. We learn a little bit about a lot of things, but we don't know a lot about very much. <laughs> unfortunately so yeah the the traditional pathway particularly if you want to work in a in a big tertiary or quaternary level hospital is to then go and do further training this is where the language gets a bit confusing some of the other guests have spoken about how they went off to do a fellowship uh it, this is very confusing language because people also talk about oh i've done my fellowship in general surgery so i've done my fellowship in general surgery and janelle brennan's done fellowship in general surgery and urology for example uh, and then people do training post-fellowship, but they call that going for a fellowship. So that, that's really confusing. Right. Um, so I think Bob Jones, he did like four different fellowships after he finished general surgery in about eight years. Yeah. Um, so some, when some people are saying their fellowship, they're talking about their general surgery training or their urology training. Uh, and when some people are talking about fellowship, they're talking about the training they did after that, which would probably be better called a post-fellowship training. So you don't have to do that, but if you want to do a subspecialty like hepatobiliary surgery or colorectal, then you do need to do it. Yep. And usually that's going to be somewhere between two and four years, something like that, which um, is, is a bit demanding because for most people, by the time they get to that stage of life, they're probably mid to late 30s. They might have a partner, they might have children. 
Mm. So choosing to go off and do further subspecialty training, which is sometimes the hardest years of your training, you'd be doing 80 hours a week on call every day of the week sometimes, getting sent anywhere in Australia or New Zealand potentially. Um, that's pretty tough on families. Uh, so that, that's not necessarily going to suit everybody. But that's, that's what generally happens for general surgery. I think some of the other specialties like vascular and neurology, there may be less tendency to do that. You, know, you don't have to spend three or four years doing this post-fellowship training. They may spend zero years or they may spend one or two years. I think that's probably a little bit more manageable. Mm. Uh, but that's sort of the, the pathway and hopefully it helps clarify things for yeah, your listeners. Absolutely. It's the, I think at this stage, you know, the specifics of each specialty, um, you know, it's probably more relevant for us to hear from registrars or, or people who are currently going through the program just because it changes so rapidly from year yeah, to year. Yeah, that's um, right, it does. But, but having the big picture view um, is obviously really helpful because it gives us, a, a you know, those who are interested in surgery who are listening uh, or those who might be converted to thinking about surgery after having a listen, um, <laughs> you know, to, to just have a have a general idea of what the roadmap is ahead and roughly what yeah. to expect. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's also a little bit less confusing when you meet um, the registrar who's not a registrar because they're yes. unaccredited. Um, <laughs> unaccredited <yeah. laughs> that was always a bit confusing for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so moving on to talk a little bit about um, some of the medical education stuff um, mm -hmm. that, you're, that you're working on at the moment. So you're you're doing a PhD at the moment um, in the area of, of medical education. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So uh, I'll just take a step back. I did a master's in surgical education. I was doing that while I was a set trainee. And then when I took a year off to look after my son, um, I did a bit more work on that and I did um, a minor thesis, which was looking at surgical education and training in Timor-Leste. So specifically, I was interested in how they went from having no program to having a program mm. and what the challenges were in that, in that process. Uh, that was really interesting from a, and it was combining my interest in surgery, global health and, and education. So leading on from that, I wanted to, to do more. So uh, I decided to do a PhD and that was my focus. So I'm interested in looking at how lower middle income countries um, are developing their surgical programs and what challenges they face. And I'm particularly interested in how high income countries can work with low and middle income countries to support their programs. And that's been a real area of um, uh, cultural shift over generations. There, there used to be this, I don't want to bore you, you know, once you get people talking about their PhDs, they can go on forever and you don't understand anything. But in very simple terms, it was very common generations ago, and even still happening to an extent today, that surgeons from high income countries would fly into low income countries, they'd consume all the resources, do lots of operating, and then they'd fly back to their home country. And they leave behind a lot of mess, very few resources, and patients with no follow-up. Now, that, that's a little bit critical. I'm being a, bit, a little bit negative about it. And I know a lot of people have done a lot of great work and spent their careers doing those sorts of things. So I don't mean to be too critical. But there, there's, there's a fundamental issue with, with that sort of missionaries-type approach to surgery, is that it's not building local capacity. So that the, the local low-income country will be forever indebted to other people coming and helping them. And so that, that's, that's not sustainable. It's not promoting their own growth and development. So a better approach, I think, for high-income countries is to support low- and middle-income countries in growing their capacity. And the best way to do that is through education. So help countries develop education programs that can train people in their own country, trained by their own doctors, so they learn how to treat the disease patterns that they're seeing in their country using the resources that they have available and they're staying with their, their families and their communities. And Fiji and, Papua New Guinea, Fiji and Papua New Guinea have been very, very successful in doing this. They've got excellent programs. Mm. Um, and they've got very high retention rates for surgeons training country. So there's a lot that we can learn out of that that we can put into the literature and, and other people can learn from. 
uh, and a country like Timor-Leste, which is a little bit further behind in the cycle, can, can perhaps learn from their neighbours as well. So I'm interested in learning more about this process and, and how a country like Australia can be useful in this. Yeah, absolutely, to help out, to help our neighbours out as well. Hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, um, in terms of, you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, as we we're talking about, you know, applying for a program and, and strategizing, yep. um, in terms of, you know, thinking about how to maybe set yourself up so you have the best chances of getting onto a program. Mm. Now, um, with medical school, I think one of, and even like being a junior doctor, one thing that we hear about often is this idea of there being a hidden curriculum. Oh, yeah. So the idea that, you know, we learn the book knowledge, mm -hmm. um, you learn all the stuff you need to know for your OSCEs and written exams and all that sort of stuff. But then mm -hmm. a lot of the other stuff um, that goes into, you know, career decisions and, and all those things, um, that's not really taught overtly. I mean, I mm. think um, I think medical schools realize that, you know, like things like ethical practice and, and medical legal law, they're things that start starting to be taught a little bit more now, but yep. the things that we don't really encounter, no one really talks to us to, like, as you said, sort of stuff that maybe you absorb passively as you're going through your training. Um, I wanted to ask you about this because, um, Obviously, like part of strategizing is like managing how you spend your time and, and your life and what you what you try and what you try to learn from. You know, just before we started recording, you said now more than ever, there's more information out there to consume. Mm. You have to be selective about how you allocate your resources. Yep. Um, just very generally, you know, if you've managed to maintain, um, you know, a, a fairly successful um, career as a runner uh, on the side of also um, working as a surgical registrar now as a consultant. Um, your wife is also an obstetrician and um, we all know that going through that training process can be quite challenging as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of strategizing, managing your time, um, what principles do you use or what things, or how do you think about, you know, where you put your attention and where you allocate your resources? Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we, we all are relatively limited, right? We've got like you yeah. know, eight, nine hours a day if you take yeah. out all the other stuff to actually yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so two important concepts um, that I think about. The first is, of course, something I learned from running. Uh, this is a, a quote I heard from Robert D. Costello, who was a famous uh, Australian marathon runner, still holds the world re uh, Australian record um, from the 80s. And he said, train smarter, not harder. And uh, at the time I heard that, I was just focused on training as hard as I possibly could, which usually resulted in a cycle of I'd get pretty fit and then I'd get injured and then I'd have months off and I'd be unfit and then I'd go through the cycle again. And train smarter was about appreciating the way you get better is through consistency and you achieve consistency by not getting injured, not getting ill, not getting burnt out, just continually improving, just continually improving steadily, steadily over and over and over. So I adapted that to my running and that made a massive difference. And then I realized that this actually applies to all aspects of life. Uh, working hard is important. And I've heard a lot of your guests emphasize the concept of working hard. And I think in medicine and especially surgery, we're always talking about working hard. That's only part of the equation. And coming back to the idea that I, I learned a lot about success from running um, more than I have from surgery. Because in, in sports, it's always talked about. Um, performance is always spoken about. Watch any game of football and afterwards they're talking to people about you know, how do you achieve success. You're always talking about it. So I learned a lot of that, that in sport. And I don't think we talk about it enough in surgery. It's always like just work hard and then everything will look after itself. And I kind of think people are successful almost despite themselves. Like, because surgery is taking this crop of people who are highly talented, highly dedicated, committed, motivated, well, if they work hard enough, they will achieve success. But you can achieve success uh, much more easily if you do so smartly. So I would say that you achieve success by working, yes, hard, yes, working for a long time, but also by working smart. And if you do it that way, you can 
make the process a lot more enjoyable. And perhaps you can be a bit more efficient with your time, which you can then dedicate to other things. And that leads me to the other concept that I think a lot about, which is opportunity cost. So time I spend doing something is time I don't spend doing something else. Where this uh, really drove home to me was uh, once my son was born, and that was in 2016. Up until then, if I had to stay back late at work, um, then, then I was like, so be it, that's my job, I'll just do it, what I have to do. And I'm still going to get home, I'm going to eat dinner, I'll see my wife and, and you know, I'll get to bed, that'll be fine. It doesn't really matter if I get home a few hours late. Once my son was born, if I got home late, then I mean I didn't see him for the day. So then I start thinking about this time I'm spending at work now, is that more valuable than seeing my son today? And this may not be a very surgical way of thinking, but that's certainly how I thought. And occasionally I might be learning something really valuable. I might be doing an operation uh, that I haven't done before or I'm getting the opportunity to do something independently that I haven't normally done. And then I think, okay, well, maybe I can make a trade-off here and that is justifiable. But sometimes I was getting home late and it was just because I was doing admin type stuff. You know, it's sort of more um, service provision than, than education and training. Right. And that would kind of irritate me that, you know, I'm missing the opportunity to see my son uh, to do this sort of admin type work. Uh, and so that, that concept is very important. Time you spend on something is time you're not spending on something else. So you need to be very uh, strategic in how you choose to use your time. And that comes back to the idea of just working hard is not always the best answer. It'll, it'll get you there, but it's not the, the fastest, most efficient or easiest way of getting there. So I encourage people to think about how you can work smarter. Uh, so how can you do that? Well, research is something that people talk about a lot and to get on a surgical training program, you need to have some research credentials. Mm. I would say that a lot of the research that juniors have been involved in involves hard work, but is not strategically well chosen. So sometimes you're getting asked to do all this data collection for a study right. that goes nowhere and doesn't get published. And that's you know, really disappointing. Working smarter would be finding a collaborative research project that has got well-credentialed people on it who know what they're doing. Uh, and you're, you've got a very well demarcated role to, in that project and you do that and then this study goes on to collect data from all these different hospitals, maybe all around the world and it gets published in a really good journal and you've had a role in it. You know, I think that's working smart. And that's what we're trying to do with Veritas is to offer research opportunities on meaningful large-scale studies where people's contribution will be rewarded. So that's the way I see we can work smarter. You can get really good research experience, you get something to show for it, uh, and you're not having to work you know, too hard for that. Yeah, you have to do work hard, but it's not just hard work uh, and it's, it's, it's getting a reward for it. Um, so I'd sort of apply that process to things. Um, I think that way about journal articles, about podcasts, about books. You know, I can't read everything, can't listen to everything. So I just want to listen to stuff that's high yield. And sometimes I might read a book and I read 30 pages and I feel like, I don't reckon I'm getting any more out of this, so I just stop reading it or listen to an interview of someone and think mm, about 10 minutes was interesting. You know, maybe most people now thought three minutes with Sean was enough. I've switched off hours ago. But, so, you know, just been very selective with time. If, if stuff's not high yield, then don't do it. Uh, or, or unless you really enjoy it, that's, that's a different point of view. If you just enjoy you know, watching Netflix or something, it doesn't have to be high yield. If you enjoy it, then that's okay. That's got value. But if, if this is time that's to advance your career, um, then make what you do high yield. Don't, don't waste time to, just spinning the wheels uh, like a rat in a rat cage. You know, so your, your career obviously is, your, your career is quite atypical compared to a yep. lot of the other surgeons who've practiced quite heavily clinically. Yep. Yep. Um, and you talked a little bit about calculated risk at the yep. start. I'm wondering how you thought about those risks, um, maybe, you know, in terms of opportunity cost or in terms of risk reward, yep. how did you actually evaluate and think about those decisions? Because, um, you know, job, job security is like something that we all care about and people don't really talk about it directly, but yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about getting onto a program and it being so competitive. How, how, how are you thinking through that process at the time? Were there any insights that you'd like to share with us? 
Mm. Um, so they're usually things that I, I'd thought about a lot. Um, if I go back to that first example I gave where I decided to take a year off to do the masters and do that work with the army. Uh, I also did anatomy demonstrating that year, which I really enjoyed. So the way I looked at it, what are the potential benefits? And I saw a lot of benefits. I'd get to pursue a number of uh, interests. And I also thought that the anatomy demonstrating would put me in a good position to pass the first part exam from when I did get on the program. So that was kind of a strategic element as well. That time I'd spend working that I got paid well for um, would also yield a dividend and it's less time I need to spend studying when I am working full time and help me pass the exam. Uh, and then I think, what's the downside? The downside is if I'm not successful in getting on the surgical program this year, I probably won't next year. So I had to weigh that up and I thought, I think I'm pretty likely to get on um, because I knew I'd have good referee reports. I thought I could do well in an interview and I thought my CV was okay. So I just backed myself. And sometimes I think you need to do that. You need to make a calculated decision to, to back yourself in. Um, and, that, and that worked out. If it didn't work out, it wouldn't have failed disastrously. It would have just delayed me by a year. I would have had to get an unaccredited registrar job and hopefully get some good referee reports and apply again. So it wasn't like, you know, it was a disaster if it didn't pay off. So I thought that was worth the risk. Um, then when I decided to take a year off um, to look after my son, that was actually a really clear decision. So I was talking to my wife one day and Amber was saying she's going to take a year off when Jack's born and that will be a year out of her program. And we're just talking about this concept of that if the mother takes a year off but the father doesn't, then the men just like naturally progress ahead in their career. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is not like some unique concept that my wife and I have discovered. This is obviously widely discussed. Yeah. And uh, I realised immediately that she's completely right. And also realised, well, that means I have to take a year off too. So I'll take a year off then I can look after my son and Amber can go back to full-time work and get back into finishing her program. And that's just a, a fair way of doing things. Um, and the other thing I got out of that, um, this is this little aside, but this might be a good thing to clear for, for men to hear, maybe not relevant for you now, but maybe tuck away and you know, back in mind for later, is by doing that, I realised the difference between helping at home and being a father or being a co-parent. It was that first year that Jack was born when I was working 60 hours a week and you know, running 100 kilometres a week and I was also doing masters at that time. I was essentially just helping at home. You know, when I was at home, yes, I was doing stuff all the time. I'd change nappies, I'd sterilise bottles and do whatever needed doing. Yeah. Um, but really, Amber was running the show. Like, Amber knew all the nuances of Jack's day and, and how that worked and what needed to be done and how he was going and his little developmental progresses. It wasn't until I took a year off that, that I understood all of that. I thought, oh, crap, there's so much going on here. Uh, I need to know, like, everything about how this house functions and where everything is and what he needs. And, but over time, yeah, you learn that. But you only learn that with time. Yeah. Uh, if you're just like swanning in, swanning out, playing a cameo performance, then that's not really co-parenting. That's just being a helper. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not judging what other people do. That's, that's their business and they have their reasons for it. But I realised for myself that if I want to be a co-parent, that's what I need to do. So that was a really easy decision that I'm taking this year off. This is what I'm doing. And uh, surgery will just have to accept that. And they did. Yeah. And I'm seeing more people doing that, which is great. Uh, talking about breaking down paradigms. So... When I, before I started surgery, before I was a medical student, actually, I got told that surgery comes first, family comes second. I got told that throughout medical school and I got told that as an intern and as a resident. And I'll say that that's bullshit. You can choose to live that way if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, that's my family comes first for me. And I think there's plenty of other surgeons who would say that. And increasingly, there's surgeons who would say that. We just have to adapt our careers. So I'm never going to be a pioneering surgeon in Australia um, leading some new technical, technological advancement in how we do um, some operation, right? Because to do that, you probably are going to have to be the surgeon that's in theatre all day, every day, on call all the time, just smashing it out. And I admire those people for the advances in, in the field that they provided. 
um, but that's not my, my life choice. Um, so, and that's, that's the concept of opportunity cost, right? Like, yeah. Uh, if you want to spend more time with your family, then it's less time you spend in your career. So you're probably not going to be at the cutting edge of the field. Although you could be think laterally and, and, and try to find other niches that are underdeveloped. And that's sort of my approach to things. So I think education has been underdone and I think there's a lot of things we can do better in education. So that, that's more where my interest and my focus lies and where I think I can hopefully make some contribution. I think you have, I think, um, you know, just speaking with some of the um, MD2s that who've been through the the surgical train, the surgical rotation, at least at the Austin, they've all said very positive things. So um, definitely making a difference there. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. That's great to hear. Just as, just as a final question, we always like to ask is at the end, you know, it's, it's only a Monday today, but yep. um, you've got two young kids at home. Um, what's, what's on the cards for this weekend? Uh, for this weekend? <laughs> well, I think we're still in lockdown, so that limits us a little bit. Um, the the uh, weekends in lockdown with children is a, is a little challenging. Uh, so the best thing with kids is having some way of structuring your day and ideally getting out of the house. Because when we're at home, they're just like constantly destroying the house and then you're just trying to repair it. <laughs> Whereas if you have them out of the house, then you don't have to worry about that destroy repair cycle. So your time's better spent. That, that's my one lesson about parenting. Spend as much time out of the house as you can. So we'll probably be at home and we'll probably go to the park. Uh, my son's a very keen runner. So we'll probably go to the park and do some running oh, uh, or play on the trampoline. And uh, I'll be working in the garden a little bit as well. Uh, and yeah, I'll be running and uh, how, are you, how are you managing yeah. to squeeze in those longer training runs um, despite the 5k limitation? Do you just run up and down like a 10k long road? <laughs> <laughs> well, cause I'm rehabbing my Achilles still, I'm not in full training at the moment. So what I'm doing, I barely even call running, um, but there is a park near me that's got a one kilometer loop. So I just go around there. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm very committed to running. So I just do whatever I have to do. So if I have to do 30, loops of a one kilometer track then that's what i'll do i've done that before if i have to fit in my 30k run by getting up at 5 a.m then before work then, then i'll do that um, so if, if you really have a passion about something you can fit it in you can make it fit in not necessarily easily um, but if you've got that passion you can use that to drive you and you can you can do it yeah absolutely i think that's a great note to um, at least wrap up this episode on sean thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate hearing some of those insights and um i guess you know all, all the best for your recovery uh, also all the <laughs> best you. with the kids as well. Um, and we'd love to have you back to talk a, few, a bit more about some of the topics we've only scratched the surface of today. So yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll be seeing you stay on at the Austin in uh, years to come. Yeah, Alice and I will both be there next year. So Oh, good. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. Excellent. Good. I will be seeing you. Cool. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, which is called the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. This episode was produced by Karen Gunatalaki and Alex Grogan. My name's Jason, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon. Have a great week.